Hello, welcome to the first of two open book takeovers of the Wigtown Book Festival podcast. I'm Claire Urquhart. And I'm Marjorie Lotfi-Gill. We are both the founders and co-directors of Open Book, which is a charity that does shared reading and creative writing right across Scotland. We work in prisons and care homes and hospital settings, in libraries with refugees and migrants, and run sessions for the public from in places like Stranraer and Eymouth and all the places between, as well as all the way up into Ireland, Shetland and Orkney, and even the islands off of Shetland. So we're all across Scotland running these groups. We're glad to be with you today. So we're going to run a mini open book shared reading session and do exactly what we'd normally do in one of our groups. We'll be reading a short piece of prose and then a poem and we'll be stopping to talk about it along the way. We're really lucky to have Chitra Ramaswamy's extract from The Wonderful Antlers of Water, which is a book edited by Kathleen Jamie. Chitra's piece, Three Meditations on Absence in Nature and Life, comes from Antlers of Water and we're delighted to have it to read this morning. The poem that we're looking at is by Alicia Per-Mohammed, who is another open book favourite. Her poem, Meditation While Plaiting My Hair, is the one that we're going to be looking at today. And you can read the extracts we'll read today on our website, openbookreading.com forward slash unbound. In the Wigtown Book Festival special newsletter you'll find there. And I should say that both of these authors are part of the Wigtown Book Festival this year, which is why we've chosen them. You can go back and hear Alicia's reading from Tea with Words yesterday, Sunday the 27th, or listen in on Thursday of this week, the 1st of October at 3.30, when Chitra is going to be doing a reading for the book festival. We've chosen one of three pieces that's part of her text from Antlers of Water, and we've chosen the second one, which is called Pigeon. And I'll just crack on. When my son was about two years old, we lived on a busy thoroughfare in Leith. Our flat was directly opposite a police station, and my son liked to stand at the windows and watch the cars parked outside, especially when they turned on their sirens and sped away. The wind that swooped up that street, casting gulls over rooftops in great arcs, came straight off the Firth of Forth. In winter, it was cold enough to draw instant tears from my eyes and made the street lamps attached to our old building waggle like weather vanes. We stood at the window a lot in those long, indistinguishable days, so much so that certain neighbours looked up as they passed, expecting to see us and waving when they did. Sometimes I felt ignited by the spark of connection. Sometimes I retreated, embarrassed, caught in the act of feeling trapped. One day as we were standing there, my son watching the cars and me watching the street lamps, a pigeon landed on the windowsill. This was not so unusual. Now and then a pigeon, though never to my knowledge a gull, would briefly alight on our narrow windowsills, which were two floors up above a pub aptly called the Compass. One year, during the winter I discovered I was pregnant with my son, a pigeon nested somewhere near our bathroom window for long enough that even now, when I replay the dramatic reveal of that little white stick with its shocking pink plus sign, it's accompanied by a warm cooing. But I never saw that pigeon. As the bathroom window was frosted, I only ever heard it. And it was a different time. 
I was preoccupied with life beyond the walls of my home in those free-as-bird days, usually passing through on my way somewhere or other, never homing for long. I did not have children, in other words. That pigeon was incidental. This one, in a time characterized by nothing much happening, was central. It stayed, for well over an hour, which is forever when you're on toddler or one presumes pigeon time. So we stayed put too, and the time seemed to stand still with us. I have never paid so much attention to a bird that so many of us see every single day of our lives. A bird threaded so intricately into the fabric of our lives that we have ceased to see it at all. The pigeon must have been injured or stunned to stop for so long, but it seemed fine. It appeared not to notice us. And so I was able to spend some time with this descendant of the world's oldest domesticated bird, a species with whom we have coexisted for many thousands of years, a bird that has delivered our messages, fertilized our land, fed us, and prompted us to build tiny dome-shaped houses for it all over the Middle East and Europe. I looked deep into this pigeon's left eye, jet black surrounded by a perfect ring of tangerine, and wondered if it looked back at me. Its bobbing neck shone an iridescent green merging into purple, a tropical palette I had never before bothered to admire purely on the grounds that it belonged to a pigeon. The matte grey of its feathers was as true as any shade of farrow and ball paint. Observing this pigeon close up, from behind a pane of glass, in the comfort and boredom of my own home, had a similar effect to looking at a found object in a gallery. Taken out of context, its pigeonness unfurled. It was the most pigeony pigeon I had ever encountered. This pigeon, a bird routinely written off as a pest, even though they rarely transmit diseases to humans, was exceptional, a thing of beauty, a bird worthy of watching. One thing that I wanted to ask about what Chitra's piece makes me think of is I have a little boy who was desperately interested in trains when he was little. You know, he would stand and watch trains forever. You know, so we used to live in London near a train station. Every day we had to go and stand on the Bloomin' Bridge, you know, that went over the top of them. And he never wanted to leave. You know, it could be freezing, it could be raining. And he wouldn't let me push the buggy onwards. Like he just wanted to stand there for half an hour, an hour and wave. And the train drivers often toot at him, you know, because they could tell it was a little boy who was desperate to see the trains. And I was like, don't encourage him. (laughs) I I recognize that thing of new motherhood of forcing yourself to stop because a child wants to see something and you don't have much choice over it. I love the acknowledgement that she was bored because I think that it's quite a brave thing to say. I mean, not, not many of us would, I think, say it, but there were huge swathes of time when my children were little that I was just bored doing the same thing over and over, reading the same book. You know, I really recognise that sentiment that she talks about there of that sort of loss of movement in your life, treating her home as a home more a stopping place on her way to do something else, sort of rest and refuel. Whereas once you have children, it very much becomes the centre. And not always positive. I mean, that language of caught in the act of feeling trapped is something I really recognize from those years. Again, I loved them, but also really felt like I just wanted a day away. Or I definitely became a lot more sanguine and calmer and better at being in that 
same place doing that same thing as my toddler got older with my second or and third children than I did the first time round. I'm think, not sure I ever hit that kind of what she's describing here as that what almost feels like mindfulness, you know, kind of really observing. I think looking back, I still filled the days with jobs and nice things, you know, gardening and baking and making bread. And I just turned my curiosity to something closer at hand. But I don't ever remember being able to stop and actually, apart from the trains, which just frustrated me, really observing something for an hour. I'm not sure I ever did. I'm not sure I ever have. Maybe we should try it. I think as well, I think with my first child, everything seemed to take forever. And so you did feel that sense of being trapped in this wild loop of no sleep or whatever, the or toilet training, whatever the particular phase you were going through was but by the time you came to the second or third children you knew it would pass so I just think I found it easier to find that presentness and mindfulness laterally but I agree I would not be good at sitting watching one thing for an hour especially not Peppa Pig (laughs) which is what my my uh, littlest one would have chosen for me to do with her for an hour had she had the choice yeah I do I really recognize that I admire her skill there you know that kind of willingness to will herself into a place and I wonder what that says about her son too that he's with her you know that she's seeing that at a time with him where they can both observe none of my children would have sat for an hour watching a pigeon either so you know I think there's something about having time together there that I don't recognize because my kids wouldn't have wanted to do this but then they would have wanted to do lego or something else so I guess just finding your thing isn't it but toddlers do have a remark or can have a remarkable sense of focus and concentration when it's something they like or something they shouldn't be doing whenever the house goes really quiet it's because they're painting the walls with pseudocreme which is what happened in my house and now I feel that way about a little kitten that we've just gotten if it's really quiet I think what is going on so so we read on and see what comes becoming a mother does this to you sharpens your senses as forcibly as it prizes open your heart. It's what looking after children demands of us and why we are told that we need eyes in the back of our head to do it effectively. Vigilance. A bird's capacity for alertness. So I knew I would need to be attentive to the needs of my son and the hazards around him. But what I did not expect was that my awareness of the non-human world would be heightened too. To parent well, joyously, and with the least amount of conflict, is to slow down. To accept that the daisy must be picked, the route deviated from, the gate opened and closed in the rain for all eternity. And when you change your pace, particularly with a person even newer to the planet than you are, you see things all over again. Yet this person, my person, had never shown any interest in birds. In fact, this not caring was so emphatic, he didn't seem to even see birds. I always pointed out the mallards, swans and mergensers with their spiky ginger quiffs along the water of Leith, as parents do with their children. But he never followed the point of my finger. He saw different things. Drains the formation of steps leading down to the river, the dance of sunlight on murky water. He saw specificity, construction, pattern, rather than life. When we tried to feed the birds, he ate the bread himself, or, if I guided him with my hand, threw it half-heartedly in the water so I knew, in the wordless way mothers just know, that he would rather it were a stone. 
I was starting to wonder whether all this was a matter of will or capacity. Was he uninterested in birds, which in the flat and judgmental language of childcare is often translated into being on his own agenda? Or was he seeing the world differently? It was a small thing, but it was there. Like the way he flapped his little brown arms when he was excited, as if indeed he were a bird. There were reasons, at once humdrum and strange, inarticulable and accumulating like a body of evidence, why I was beginning to think he was autistic. I was frightened, though he was happy and always so effortlessly and admirably himself. So I began to embrace his interests, to realise that drains could be beautiful too. This visitation then truly was extraordinary. My son not only saw the pigeon, it blew him away. It was as thrilling and unsettling as if Judith Kerr's tiger had come to tea. This was what was required for him to notice a bird. It had to be offered up in a private, solo show. It had to be an event outside the norms of daily life. And it had to come to us. We talked about it, by which I mean my son shouted, Pigeon, over and over again. And I said, yes, hello, Pigeon, and made coo 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 noises. We lost interest, wandered away, came back, and the pigeon was still there. I became worried and decided to open the window, but before I got the chance, the pigeon flew away, and like the tiger, it never came back. For many months afterwards, my son, whose speech and language continued to develop so idiosyncratically, brought up the pigeon whenever his gaze was drawn to the window. My son, who did not, and as I was beginning to understand, could not, otherwise talk about the past, would repeat the entire conversation, playing both our parts, though not the pigeon. It is a form of speech known as echolalia, a sustained parrot speak, common both in children learning to speak, but also an indicator of autism. This unusual and playful way of speaking which I had never encountered before, but fell into so easily, amused me, thrilled me, scared me. It also made perfect sense. It suited my son. It could not be any other way. The pigeon talk went on for a very long time. It had been a homebound adventure. It had opened a channel of desperately longed-for communication between us. For a few months, this bird was a major character in the story of our lives. The truth is, I never once stood at that window again without thinking about that pigeon and the message it brought me. I wonder if you see the, the eye in the story differently in the second part, Claire, because I feel she changes for me for sure. I think there's definitely a weightiness in the second part, which contrasts quite strongly, I think, for me with the Pharaoh and Ball and the pigeony pigeon in the first half. I mean, that we get hints of it, I think, when 
the, the bit about stepping back from the window when the neighbour looks up to wave. But definitely I feel that the second part was sort of more reflective and more serious, I think, than the first. For me, it feels like it goes on the journey that she's taking. So we start with, you know, a description of where they lived and the kind of things they did and they were a bit different or a bit you know than, than her usual stop and go at life before having children she's trying to be mindful and then as we go through the piece she's acknowledging the way her son is responding to the bird what it comes to me is us kind of settling with this idea that he's different or certainly different from her and that real acknowledgement that it frightens her you know, it feels like the piece takes us through that transition from being almost a single person feeling embarrassed by being trapped to mindfulness to them or that being mindful of something that they're watching together to them. Yeah, somehow acknowledging, settling into this idea that there might be something different about her son and that he is also just himself in a way that others might not see. And I think picking up on that idea of sort of journey and transition, that sort of change from you as a new mother into someone who really only has to think about yourself into a person who barely thinks of yourself and, and you know, who puts, puts your child at the forefront of all your decision making and almost all your choices. And I think you get that real sense of journey and movement and change. I think there's a real moment when she's talking about the things that she sees you know, and that she's always tried to convince him to see the birds, feed the birds, all those sorts of things. And actually what he wants to do is see the drains and see other things. And I think that's a real, it's a perfect example of a shift that so many parents have to make too. Because when you become a parent, or at least this was true for me, you know, you have a vision of what that should be like, right? You have a vision of that you should do certain things, that you should go to the park, that you should, you know, and how your day should go if you're working or if you're not working, depending but you have an idea of what parenting is like and the things that your children should want to do and be interested in. And they forever have their own ideas because, you know what, they're their own people. So, you know, for me, there was always this idea that this is a little person and my job is to help frame them or shape them or whatever. But as my kids get bigger, I'm increasingly realizing that all I've done is keep them safe and fed and, you know, give them a sense of comfort. And actually the better thing is to encourage, she does in this piece, that they find their own thing, you know, rather than just mimicking whatever it is I thought they should be like. I don't know if that makes sense to yeah, you. Yeah, totally. It reminded me very much of that um, Sinead Morrissey poem, Cathedral, which is, you know, about a child's acquisition of language. Mm, and how she planned it out, yeah. <laughs> and how you don't get to choose what your child's first word is. No, even though she planned it to be apple, pear and spoon, it turns out to be a full sentence about a clock or something. But I do like, you know, I, I really recognize that moment of suddenly deciding to see the drains yourself as a parent. And I have to say, I think that came a bit late for me. You know, I really am impressed with Chitra's acknowledgement of it so early on, because I wish, you know, going back now, it's probably something I would try and do earlier. You know, I was still trying to convince my kids years later to look at something they weren't interested in rather than following their gaze, which is just something I've come to later in life, I think. And I think as well, that recognition of, those potential differences so early on is just, I think it's just such a lovely, I guess, mirror into their lives and, and into the sort of attention that Chitra is giving her son, the observance that she has of him to be able to notice these things. And she was just thinking back as to whether I would have had the presence and in the madness of, of it all, you know, to, to actually realize and, and, be able to articulate 
these things. Well, it sounds like it was a momentous occasion for him to notice something that you've been trying to get him to notice for a while, but also that it became an anchor in their kind of family lore, as it were. You know, the pigeons then suddenly, that's the day that pigeons came alive, as it were. I wonder what Chitra's son will say about pigeons as he grows up. Shall we move on to Alicia's poem, maybe, and see how, if, if it connects, how it might connect with this idea of mothering and... Let's, let's do that. Do you want to read it? Sure. It's called Meditation While Plaiting My Hair. I part my hair straight down the middle, a river on either side. In the past, someone shaped like me poured water from a metal carafe straight into my mouth. The echo of my river submerged in your river. Lately, I read about storms all night because there's no lightning here. Instead, I see the wind pull down the tautness of trees and the swans at the lagoon part through the wreckage. Each one is another translation for love if love was more vessel than loose thread. Once, we sat poolside outdoors in Dar es Salaam and I chose survival over your body. Why is it that I only ever see the night heron alone? I tendril neatly together my hair, soaked by salt and the wood of a body I do not touch, the spine of a book left open on the page I forgot to bookmark, the spine of a book I left out in a storm, each of its rooms sliding into our margins, into all these tendrils of blank space. And tell me, when did I let a splinter? I love her poetry because it feels like there's enough of a narrative there to really hook you. So my brain is spending the whole time trying to figure out what the story is. But the, the language is so beautiful as well. It feels almost like a song. Yeah, I've, I've noticed that before, that you get the story, but you don't get the whole story. My brain was already going, is, is this a mother and daughter? Is this two lovers? Is this siblings? Well, I, th- I feel like the beginning of the poem is about a mother and daughter because it's, you know, someone shaped like me. And that idea that you're pouring water or giving life to your child. The echo of my river submerged in your river is just a beautiful line. And the idea of toddlerhood or, you know, that for me, it conjures up that kind of age when you're young enough to still feed a child or give a child a sip of water. And at that point, your river, the child's river, is still very much submerged in the parent. But for me as well, it's it's the characteristics that run from parent to child. There'll often be comments made, oh, you're so like your dad or your mum does that or whatever. And, and that line recalls that for me. Yeah, and I wonder, I mean, for me, that doesn't happen very often because my parents don't live here. And so that's one of the things you lose when you leave home for good is that the people around you don't recognize your family in you at all um, or in your children. So it's always unusual and a delight when I go to the States and people say, one of your children will do something just like your auntie or your cousin or doesn't she look just like, you know, your granny, which of course the Scottish side of the family see and take over, you know, and they fight about which part of the Scottish side the children are like. But um, I never hear that. Or people remind me that I do something like someone in my own family. You lose that. So I, ha- I haven't had that 
Um, and I'm really conscious that for Alicia, who's Canadian, that's true as well. You know, she's living here in Scotland away from, I would call it home. I'm not sure she would. But, you know, that that line of there's no lightning here. I'm assuming she's writing it in Scotland where there, we've had some lightning this year. But, you know, in, the Nor- in North America, you would get it all the time. So um, I recognize that too. I love the line that each one is another translation for love. I'm trying to figure out what it means. If love was more a vessel than a loose thread. Is that back to the carafe being poured, giving giving of yourself to a child? I don't know. What did you make of that? The vessel being the thing which holds everything together. And I think, you know, in, in parenthood, the mother is very much the vessel, actually the vessel because she's born the child, but the sort of vessel that holds all the sloshing around of family life and of ups and downs and gives it boundaries and gives it shape and gives it form. I wonder too, you know, because it says if, so it feels like it's something that's allowed to shift. You know, the idea of love is allowed to shift from being a vessel to being a loose thread. So for me, I'm reading into this poem, although I think it could easily be about lovers as well. That family, and maybe because we've been talking about Chitra's piece about parenting, the idea that familial love anyway changes from being a vessel to a loose thread as you move, as you cross boundaries. And again, I'm reading in what I know about Alicia's life, but or mine maybe, and it becomes a completely different thing. And I wonder as well, with you having a child who's just gone off to university, that love is now, the love for him is now a thread that stretches to where he is, rather than when they're younger, it being an all-encompassing surrounding vessel. And that definitely, I think that, that for me, that's what that line means. It, it, I read it as being, in the beginning, it's all surrounding and, you know, the way that you are the centre of your children's world. And then as they grow and become more independent and strike out in the world, it becomes more of a thread that attaches them back to you. But you're no longer the centre of everything. And that's heartbreaking, to be honest. But then I feel heartbroken by that in some ways. And then I think of the way that I perceive my parents <laughs> and think, well, fair enough. you know, Because <laughs> I live halfway around the world, you know, and so... I do think, well, you know, things do come come around in a way. So, you know, you must look in both directions, as it were. And again, looking at the language for her, the spine of a book left open on a page that she forgot to bookmark, again, for me, can be read about a home or belonging or a sense of a place. And for me as well, that imagery of this, the book open at its spine is very much the roof of a house. I, I sort of was imagining the water running down the sides of it, but the pages underneath being okay, as it were. I was, yeah, I was thinking of it the other way. I was thinking of it open in the rain and smudging. The story of your life begins to blur because you've not taken care of it, you've not tended it in the right way. And then I guess maybe it's that last line, when did I let a splinter? You know, as a young person, you do, well, I did anyway. You know, not only go off to university, but then I moved, I moved to New York, you know, a few hours north, and I worked like you in a pretty full-on job and never got back very often, or certainly not as often as I could have or would have thought I would have and then I moved abroad and you know you just you do things without actual actually thinking about the impact on this story as it were or your story and I love that image of a book left open you know because it does blur your story you forget to bookmark it it moves on your story moves on and changes without noticing really but I like the idea of the the that you're able to do that and you've got the freedom to do that without the obligation of constantly be looking back and saying, you know, actually, I'd really like to be in New York this weekend because something really cool is happening, but I should go home and see my parents. That you, your parents gave you the gift of the ability to make that choice. 
Yeah, I think they did. Well, I mean, and also their lives gave me that gift. You know, go and see the world. My mum used to always say, go and see the world, go and see the world. And now she'll say, the danger with telling your children to go and see the world is that they do. Yeah, they definitely gave me the kind of pass, as it were. In fact, not quite the boot. I always, always welcome home, but kind of go, go, go. This is, you know, staying here is boring. You can always come back. And I feel like Alicia isn't necessarily saying that about her parents, but she's recognizing the gift. And also, it, for me, it's a poem about not noticing what you're giving up when you go. And this poem is the act of recognizing it. You know, that idea of, you know, finally looking and seeing um, the room sliding into the margins, you know, in a way that we don't notice we're doing because we're too busy with the thing in front. And that ties so beautifully into Chitra's piece about finally noticing the pigeon becoming center stage in a way that, you know, they never are. They certainly aren't in my life. But that if you take a moment, you can see the thing. Um, and the, for me, Alicia's poem is doing that very thing. Yeah, that was a, a lovely poem. Thank you, Alicia, for letting us have it today. Yeah, and, and huge thanks to Chitra as well um, for allowing us to read and discuss her work. She can let us know, or you can let us know what you think about it as well, um, and whether you have other other things that you have paid attention to that we should maybe all start paying more attention to as well. Um, and I was just going to say, I encourage you to go and find the other, the other two parts of it as well in the beautiful book, Antlers of Water Winter Essays on Nature by Scottish writers. Um, lots and lots of names that you'll know. Um, it's a beautiful thing to hold, but also each essay is different. So you get a whole kind of um, crock pot of wonderful um, reflections on Scottish life and Scottish nature in one book, which is a treat. I was just going to say, if you do want to get in touch with us and let us know what you thought or think um, about the events or the pieces of writing or anything we've said, we'd love to hear from you. You can drop us an email to info at openbookreading.com. And if you'd like to join one of our groups or drop in on another shared reading, we do run sessions most weeks um, that are free uh, and you can find out more information about them on our website openbookreading.com forward slash unbound and in fact we're running a zoom cup of tea after chitra's reading on thursday so if you'd like to join us for that chitra will do a reading live through the wigtown festival book festival and afterwards open book is hosting a zoom coffee where we'll do effectively what we've done here talk about chitra's work and what she was reading and what we make of it so if you'd like to join us in that conversation please look on our website um, for the details of how to join us there on a zoom cup of tea and if you'd like to join us again for another open book takeover of the Wigtown Book Festival podcast, we'll be talking about Louis Sagasti's work later in the week. We hope you join us. Thanks so much to the Wigtown Book Festival for having us today. And thanks so much to you for joining us. We hope you'll join us again soon. <laughs>